0: This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. As we approach the first night of Pesach later this week, I wanted to offer a bonus episode in order to give all of us some ideas that can enhance the Seder and our appreciation of the mitzvah of telling the story of the Exodus from Egypt. To that end, I was honored to speak with some of my friends and former colleagues, the morning faculty of Yeshiva Isodeha HaTorah, the yeshiva which I directed with my good friend Rabbi Pesach Walicki. Along with Rabbi Wiliki, I was joined by Rabbi Yaakov Aram, Rabbi Yisrael Herzig, Rabbi Adi Krohn, and Rabbi Moshe Lichman. As I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, these were part of our faculty, though certainly not the entire staff. There were other wonderful rabbeim who were also part of the yeshiva, and I hope to have them on a future episode as well. In this conversation, my guests offered short divrei Torah that they find meaningful, and that I'm sure you will too. They also gave some insights into how to make the Seder engaging for people, adults and children who might be less enthusiastic than others at the table. We'll get there momentarily, but by way of introduction, I want to present my own interpretation of Halachma Anya, which I wrote several years ago. Especially in these days of fractionalism and division in the Jewish world, I think that Halachma Anya's message of unity can resonate and help us internalize the importance of achdut, of loving each other despite, and perhaps even because of, our differences. Here's what I wrote. Magid, The recounting of the story of the Exodus and one of two biblically mandated mitzvot of the Seder is recited on the night of Pesach following Kiddush, washing and eating the karpas vegetable, and breaking the middle matzah. As soon as Magid begins, immediately preceding the four questions, a short paragraph beginning with the words halach ma'anya is recited. This is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. All who are hungry, let them come and eat. All who are needy, let them come and celebrate the Passover. This year we are here, next year in the land of Israel. This year we are slaves, next year free men. What's the purpose of this paragraph? It seems to be out of place, for a true invitation should come at the beginning of the Seder rather than after Kiddush. Moreover, there's no indication that people are supposed to cry this paragraph aloud at their front doors, as would befit a true invitation. Rather, it seems to be ceremonial and, accordingly, disingenuous. Finally, the invitation itself is halakhically dubious only individuals who had previously arranged to eat the Korban Pesach, the Passover sacrifice, together are legally permitted to partake of that sacrifice. Whereas the above paragraph states that, all who are needy, let them come and celebrate the Passover, technically an invitation to eat the Korban Pesach with the rest of the household. Should someone accept, halacha would demand that this invitation be immediately rescinded. The answer can be ascertained by noting, that only two holidays in the Jewish calendar carry with them the potential punishment of karet, being cut off, should they be violated. Pesach, by eating chametz or refusing to offer the Korban Pesach, and Yom Kippur, by eating during the fast or by doing forbidden melacha work during the day. While the nature of karet has long been debated, the simplest manifestation of this unfortunate consequence is clearly defined in the Torah. It means that the person is cut off from the Jewish people the various rabbinic interpretations of karet are simply attempts to understand the ramifications of being cut off from the Jewish people rather than alternate interpretations of that which is plainly stated in the Bible. According to the scholars of Jewish mysticism, the Jewish people as a metaphysical entity, Knesset Yisrael, is identified with the Shekhinah, the divine presence. Knesset Yisrael does not refer to an individual Jewish person or even the sum total of all Jews alive today but instead to the Jewish people across time and space, the Jewish nation, that is, as a single indivisible unit that transcends its current spatial and temporal boundaries. In a manner impossible to quantify scientifically, then, this metaphysical unit, of which every Jewish individual takes part, is somehow the divine presence itself. The course of Jewish history, both ancient and modern, bespeaks this equation. We can never fully trace the sources of our faith. Indeed, the experience of the divine should exceed the intellectual content of any attempted proof of the truths of religion. Nevertheless, who is not struck by the strange, almost unbelievable reality that is the Jewish people? Its history is singular, its accomplishments unrivaled, its hold on the human imagination inexplicable. It was the primary source of monotheism, the most important idea in history. It gave the world the Bible, the most influential book in history. It spawned two religions that encompass half the population of the globe. It has repeatedly violated every rule of historical empiricism. People can love the Jewish people or hate the Jewish people, but no one can remain indifferent to the Jewish people. The greatest crime in history was perpetrated against them. The most unlikely occurrence in modern history, the emergence of a thriving state of Israel despite its being the most scrutinized and hated country on earth, happened to them. Their contributions to technology and medicine, academia and law, business and entertainment, physics and economics exceed their expected impact a hundredfold or perhaps more. Whatever this phenomenon means, it's unquestionably a source of wonder. I firmly believe that only one explanation makes sense of this perplexing reality, the equation of Knesset Israel and the divine presence. In a mysterious way, the Shekhinah acts through the Jewish people, and the Jewish people, regardless of their religious observance or belief, are permeated with Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God. The unmatched creativity of Knesset Yisrael is the unseen workings of God. The powerful emotions the Jewish people evoke are unconscious responses to the divine presence. If violations of Pesach and Yom Kippur result in injury to a person's bond with Knesset Yisrael, we can accordingly assume that giving these days the special regard they are due, results in a strengthening of the same connection. For reasons known only to Hashem, Pesach and Yom Kippur are the two particular holidays that allow us to connect to Knesset Yisrael, that is, to connect to the Divine Presence. Experiencing Pesach and Yom Kippur is, in fact, the experience of contact with the Shekhinah. Indeed, Rav Salvechik Zatzal described this reality as well. He writes, in my experience, that is, in my experiential, not intellectual memory, two knights stand out as endowed with unique qualities, exalted in holiness and shining with singular beauty. These knights are the knight of the Seder and the Knight of Kol Nidre. As a child, I was fascinated by these two knights because they conjured a feeling of majesty. In a word, as a young child, I felt the presence of Kidusha, holiness, on these knights. This quote comes from The Rav, The World of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, by Aaron Rakefet at Rathkoff. However, there is one condition for such an experience to take place. Because of the equation of the Divine Presence with Knesset Israel, the Divine Presence can only be experienced if Knesset Israel is experienced as well. The fundamental attribute of God, His unity, must also be applied without exception to the people of Israel. The attempt to encounter the divine without simultaneously encountering Knesset Israel is a contradiction in terms. A heart that is closed to Knesset Israel in toto is de facto closed to the Shekhinah. For this reason, Magid begins with an invitation to every Jew to join us at the Seder. This is not a message to any individual person as much as it is a message to ourselves. In order to properly observe the Seder, in order to mystically experience the Shekhinah, We must first open our hearts to every member of the Jewish people. By accepting every Jew, religious or not, rich or poor. By internalizing the phrase, all who are hungry, all who are needy. By finding reasons to bring someone close, rather than developing excuses to push him away. We give voice to our desire to literally feel the divine presence joining us during the Seder. When we are receptive to the entirety of Knesset Yisrael, we are accepting the divine presence into our homes. Yom Kippur accordingly begins with the exact same message. Moments before the onset of the day, before the emotional and spiritual power of Kol Nidre, we loudly state, Anu Matirin pallel im Haavaryanim. We give permission to pray together with those who have been excluded from the community. In other words, we drop all communal divisions, deserve it or not, and invite every Jew back into the synagogue. In fact, we must do this as it is the absolute requirement in order to experience the divine presence on Yom Kippur. The Sederite and Yom Kippur are linked in an additional way as well. These are the two occasions on which the phrase, Shanaha Ba'Abi Yushalayim, next year in Jerusalem, is formally included in the liturgy. One reason for this is certainly the off reality, that no holidays have been changed by the Temple's destruction as much as these two dates, with their extreme emphasis on the service in the Beit HaMikdash but I believe that there is a second reason, directly connected to the first for its recital. As the primary annual occasions when the divine presence is exceptionally near, the Seder night and Yom Kippur represent the ultimate opportunities for experiencing the Shekhinah in time. Nevertheless, while the experience of divinity in time may be powerful, it's not as intense as experiencing divinity in both time and space. By praying that we celebrate next year in Jerusalem, we are asking to move forward from this wonderful yet partial experience and allow it to become the complete experience of feeling God's presence on the days when he is exceptionally available and in the place where he is exceptionally available. May the divine presence be felt this Seder night through our acceptance and love of every member of Knesset Israel, And may this feeling be a prelude to the complete experience of finding God in both time and space that we hope will take place next Pesach and rebuilt Jerusalem. That was my take on Halach Ma'anya, and now here's my conversation about making a meaningful Seder with the morning Seder staff of Isodia Torah. Rabbi Pesach Waliki, Rabbi Yaakov Aram, Rabbi Yisrael Herzig, Rabbi Adi Krohn, and Rabbi Moshe Lichman, thank you all for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you all back again. This is the morning Seder staff of the final year of Yesodia Torah. That's our yeshiva that closed. Rabbi Liki and I had a yeshiva that closed about eight years ago, and these were among our beloved staff wonderful people and wonderful Tamadei Chachamim. We're going to be speaking about the say to give ideas to people about how they can make their Seder more meaningful, both through some specific short divrei Torah, as well as perhaps some ideas about making it engaging both for adults and for children. One caveat, I don't want anyone to think that because this is the morning Seder staff, this is the sum total of the Asode staff. We have many other wonderful teachers who are also part of our institution and always will be. And I had to decide who's going to be involved. I said morning seder is an easy way of dividing it, but that does not mean that the others are not beloved as well. So please keep that in mind. We're going to begin right now by jumping right into discussing the Pesach seder. Rav Herzig, if you can open up by talking about the order of the seder that we say at the beginning, the Simani, and we talk about Kadesh, Orchats, etc. Could you give a Dvar Torah about that?
1: All right. I'm going to tell you over something I heard when I first moved to my current home in Harnof. I was riding a bus home about two or three days before Pesach, and an older gentleman sat down next to me and immediately started talking Divrei Torah to me. His name was Rabbi Hanowitz, and he's from Montreal, so kol haomer davar b'shem whoever says something over in the name of the person who said it brings redemption to the world, so I want to give him credit. And since I heard this word, I always begin the Seder with it. He says that the, the simonim of the Seder that we recite at the very outset of the Seder, there's a message to them. It's not just a, a, a preview of things to come. Kadesh, if a person wants to sanctify himself, he must cleanse himself. He must take active measures towards sanctification. Karpas, Roshetevot, it stands for Klal Rishon Peh Satun. The first rule, if you want to to sanctify yourself, you have to keep your mouth shut. Yachatz magid. You should say half of what you want to say. Rochza. If you've done that, then you have washed yourself. You have cleansed yourself. Motzi matzah. Now, the word matzah, well, of course, the simple meaning is the unleavened bread, but it also means strife, conflict. Motsi matzah, if you say half of what you want to say, and you think twice before you say anything, you have taken yourself out of conflict. Moror. if you have something bitter to say to somebody, something offensive, you wrap it up. Shulchan o'rech, the set table, all the goodness, all the visible goodness that Hashem has given us in this world that can be a cause of jealousy, soften. It's it's hidden. You don't brag about it. You don't talk about the, the gifts Hashem has given, given you. If you've done that, you are boreich, halel, and nirtza. You are blessed, you are mohulal, you are praiseworthy, and you are nirtza. You are accepted and pleasing to HaKadosh Baruch.
0: Ah, what a beautiful idea. Thank you. That's fantastic. I think a lot of people are going to be starting their Seder with that Torah, which is a good way to open up the Seder as well. People are going to be speaking a lot. So the idea of maybe you should watch what you say and make sure you say the right things, not the wrong things, when all the family is there is a wonderful opening message. Thank you, Robert. So, Rabbi Krohn, I know you also want to speak about the same ideas about the order of the Seder.
2: Yes, uh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, I'll share a Dvar Torah, actually, I heard from uh, Rabbi Ephraim Nissenbaum, who's uh, a Rev in Cleveland, which is my former residence before making Aliyah. Uh, He has a beautiful Haggadah called Narratives of Faith, where he opens the, the Haggadah, essentially, with the question of why is it that we even recite the order of the Seder? It's such a bizarre thing. It's not like we sit down to a Shabbos meal and say... You know, k- kiddush. You know, hamotzi. You know, uh, berakah. You know, uh, I and Mazon. We don't do the same thing when it comes to a Shabbos meal or Yom Tov meal or any meal. So why come when it comes to the seder that we want to we want to do this? So certainly we can always get the answer. Well, so the kids will ask. It's a funny thing to do. Or also it helps the people get a sense of what's coming up. It's a long evening. But he he suggests a different idea, which is that uh, if we think symbolically, the the emotional state of uh, of a slave leaving, you know, to freedom you would imagine that you probably would be in a state of discombobulation. You could think sort of maybe a prisoner released from prison or like a prison break. You imagine everyone sort of running around helter-skelters sort of not really having a sense uh, of order. And what the what they're reciting, the idea of the Seder, Kadesh, Orchatz, karpas it gives the indication of exactly what was happening at the time in Yetzirah Mitzrayim, that there was a sense of order. You know, Hashem had given very, very precise instructions to B'nai Yisrael, what they're supposed to do that evening. I mean, thinking about Makat Becherot, Really, a horrific evening from the Mitri's perspective and very scary from the Jews' perspective, right? Hashem as posseach, you know, hovering over our homes. But there's this fear that, you know, some terrible things would happen. But we had very, very clear instructions. We knew exactly what we were supposed to do. And things actually were quite organized. The way B'nai Israel left Mitzrayim was in a very organized way. There's even Midrashim that talk about the tribes, you know, going towards Yamsuf, crossing Yamsuf in a very organized manner by the tribes. The pasuk tells us, "Lo shall know a dog didn't even bark. Meaning, what does it mean a dog didn't bark? Dogs, generally speaking, they bark when things are out of order, when something's out of the ordinary. A stranger approaches the house, the dog begins to bark, right? But the idea that no dog was barking gives a sense of uh, of um, of order, essentially, to the whole evening of uh, of Yitziat Mitzrayim that night of the the Seder night. Now, we even have this within the Seder, you know, Rabbi Dahayan, notem simanim, adash be'achav, about the makot. Why would you give simanim? What's added by the, the giving of the simanim? We know what they are, you know, so maybe it's a nice mnemonic to help. Remember, Rabbi Nisimam suggests that the idea of detzach adash everything everything's organized. We even have a nice mnemonic for it, everything according to the letters, everything works nicely and uh, and evenly and uh and that's a you know a a nice sense of sort of what the the idea of the night's supposed to be when we're going to commemorate this evening of the tziat mitzrayim we start off by saying that's exactly what we have in mind this is not some endless seder that you know we'll just take it whatever direction it goes we have a sense of order and we're going to we're going to do that as well um there's a nice message here i think generally speaking if we think about you know b'nei israel leaving Mitzrayim, also not just to break away to be free to be free from something but we all often talk about be free to do something, that being where we're marching on our way towards Har Sinai, ultimately towards Eretz Yisrael. Right. The idea is that we have a sense of purpose. We, have, we know exactly why we're leaving and what we're leaving to be able uh, to accomplish. And uh, perhaps that's a nice message also just in general about what the Torah is supposed to give to a Jewish person, so a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning in life. That when we feel organized, when we feel like we know what we want to do, we feel like we have a sense of direction. And purpose, it allows for even very difficult times and troubling times to be that much easier because we know where we're where we're headed, and that's uh, I think a beautiful way uh, to start the uh, to start the seder.
0: Thank you, Rabbi Kron. That was fantastic, and I know you have another dvar Torah you want to say about Karpas as well.
2: Sure. So this is a dvar Torah that I found in um, the Haggadah of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs Zatzal, and uh, he he talks about the idea that Karpas is one you know a strange thing we do. We're dipping uh, the vegetable, whichever vegetable we happen to have into salt water and it reminds us that there's you know there's two different times that we dip uh during the evening as we say in the uh, uh generally we only might be you know one time or no times in here uh so he says what is this uh commemorating what's the idea behind the uh, the dipping in particular that we do at the seder so he says really historically there are two dippings that we're commemorating one is the beginning of the galut in mitzrayim and one is the beginning of the gullab the redemption from Mitzrayim, the dipping that rep- represents the beginning of the Galut is the dipping of Yosef's coat in the blood. The brothers, when they sold Yosef down to Mitzrayim, they dipped the coat in blood and showed their father, you know, uh, and let him come to his own uh, his own conclusion. So that's one of that's one dipping, and uh, and the Jewish people in, there, in in Mitzrayim we also have to dip the ezov the the hyssop in the blood of the Korban Pesach to paint the doorposts so that we'll be protected uh, from Makap Bechorot. And we have these sort of two images of things being dipped in blood that represent two fundamentally different things. You have the, the, the going down to Mitzrayim and the really the Ge'ulah, the redemption from Mitzrayim. And he says uh, a very beautiful insight, Rabbi Sachs. He points out that uh, what we're doing in the dipping is we're actually taking one object and dipping it in its opposite in a certain sense. The karpat you can look at as a vegetable that maybe is somewhat sweet. And we're dipping it in salt water, which is salty. So that's a, a contrast. And on the flip side, we have the maror, which we dip into the haroset, the maror, which is bitter, which we dip into the haroset, which is sweet. So what are we doing with these two things? So he says if we take the uh, the karpas, which will rub, you know, and, uh, and dip it into salt water, we say sometimes there are sweet things but if you misuse the sweet, it can become salty. And the maror, which is something bitter, if you use the maror for the right thing, you dip it into, into something sweet, it can actually become sweet so he says for example you know galut slavery these are ostensibly terrible things but if you use them properly with the right perspective maybe in retrospect you understand what the purpose was we can use that the experience of slavery to unite ourselves together as jews right to say there is uh as a time that most jews i think that the number one celebrated holiday by jews is the seder night right and that's uh a very beautiful thing so if we use that experience to move forward to unite together and to do positive things maybe to also think about you know the oppression of uh that we experienced and therefore maybe to reduce hopefully oppression right we know that we always have the many psukim which talk about being a gary in mitzrayim, and therefore we should have uh, Rahmanut, we should have mercy on uh, other gayrim so if we have that perspective then we can take the experience of slavery which is a terrible terrible experience but we turn it into something positive on the flip side if we take the redemption let's say something sweet but we dip it into uh, you dip it into saltwater. If you misuse redemption, if you take the idea of redemption and you use it as a freedom to be able to, um, you know, let's say live a wild lifestyle that doesn't have uh, a sense of moral purpose, a sense of uh, um, connecting to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and you uh, or you use it, God forbid, to oppress other people. Now that you have the power and you have control, so you're taking something which ostensibly ostensibly is very sweet and unfortunately make it very bitter. So this this story of contrast. In terms of the dipping of the carpas and the maror, Rabbi Sachs brings it out to talk about you know much bigger issues, which I think is uh, a beautiful message to also talk about at the uh, seder table.
0: Thank you very much, Rabbi Krohn. That was a beautiful idea. Of course, unsurprisingly, we now move into Magid, the actual story of the Exodus from Egypt. But that story is prefaced by a paragraph, Halachma Anya. This is the bread of affliction, and I know Rav Lichman, you want to speak about that.
3: Yes. In, in the spirit of So I'm sure everybody has their own favorite Haggadah. So mine is the Elio Kitov Hagada, And actually both of my Torah are from there. The first one is from the Halachmania. So we say, we invite anybody you know, who's poor and can't afford, we say, come and join us at the Seder. But at the very beginning we say, Now we're here Next year, we should be in Eretz Israel. Ashata Avdi. Now we're we're sl- slaves, servants. Next year we should be free. So uh Rabbi Yaakov Emdin, who was quoted in the, the Eliau Kitab Agada, Rav Yaakov Emdin, Emdin asks seemingly that's repetitive. Because when we say this year we're here, we mean we're in exile and we're enslaved, meaning we're not riboni, we're not uh, independent. We're at the whim of the nations that we're living among. Next year we should be in Eretz Yisrael, which seemingly means we should be redeemed. And then we say now we're slaves. Next year we should be free. Isn't that the same thing just said in two different ways? And he says, no, it's not. And he, he explains it by saying that you know, when we were in Egypt, we were absolute slaves. There was no way out. You know, It's very famous that anybody who was a slave in Egypt, until the Jews got out of Egypt, no one ever escaped Egypt. It was an ironclad uh, you know, prison, there was no way out. We are not, no matter how terrible Galut exile is, we are not like that anymore. And he says, the words he says is unbelievable, especially when you think about when Rav Yaakov lived. He lived, was born at the very, very end of the 17th century, 1600s, and he lived until the middle, late 1700s. So he said this somewhere in the middle of the 1700s. He says, for even if we live in a foreign land today, next year we could be in Eretz Yisrael by our own free will. Meaning, forget about forget about I'm not talking about there will be a Gilead, but at least we can leave where we are and we can go to to Eretz Israel. No one is stopping us. And then, even if God forbid, the time of redemption has not yet come, but the land of Israel is before us to go and dwell there at any time. So basically, it's really too and we're saying hopefully next year we should be in Eretz Yisrael. Whether the Gula, whether the final redemption comes or not, we hope that we'll be in Eretz Yisrael, we'll be able to actually pick up and move to Eretz Yisrael even before the Gula. And then we say, now we're slaves, we should be totally free, meaning the ultimate Gula. And, you know, first of all, the very fact that in the 1700s, he says, you know, Nothing's stopping us from going to Eretz Yisrael. You think about that today, you compare it to today's you know, situation where I'm sure, I think you lived in Germany, uh, to get to Eretz Yisrael was probably a several-month trip, and it was difficult, and there was nothing here in Israel like it, like there is now. And he still said, nothing is stopping us. Free will, we could go, go and be in Eretz Yisrael. And you know, compare that to today, the situation we have and how easy it is to get to Eretz Yisrael, is a very important message at the beginning of the Haggadah. But there's something else, uh, very, very important that we can learn, and that is that Galut and Gula is not one you know, quick jump from the, the, the depths of Galut till the, the heights of Geula. It could happen that way, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen that way. And there are shlavin, there are stages. And what we learn from what he's saying is that Yes, on the extremes, there's absolute galut and absolute gula. Absolute galut means that we're in a place of galut, a place of exile, and we're also in a state of exile. And then the ultimate, of course, is that we're in the place of gula, which is Eretz Yisrael, and we're in a state of gula, meaning we're redeemed, Mashiach is here, we have a Beit HaMikdash, and everything is back to the way it's supposed to be. But there is that middle ground. There is a situation where we could still be in a state of galut, we're not yet redeemed, but on the other hand, at least we're in Eretz Yisrael, and that is something that we have today in our day and age. And and for those people who have the opportunity, it's 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 a message to us that we should all try our best to come at least to bring ourselves halfway towards the ultimate gula, and then hopefully Hashem will see our actions and will bring us the other half of the way and we'll see the ultimate doula by next year.
0: Ah, what a beautiful divert Torah. I'm very surprised with Lichman you didn't do something on brand though, I have to say. Nevertheless, it was a uh, it was great. Let's continue, Rev Lichman. You also have something to say about Dayenu, I know.
3: Oh, okay. There's a lot of questions on Dayenu that are based on a very simple reading of the text, which is really not true. And that is you just read the words it says if God had done this, but didn't do this, it would have been sufficient for us. As if, you know, it's good enough if God brought us out of Egypt, but didn't punish the Egyptians who had persecuted us, etc., etc. Now, the real answer to all those questions, because some of them make no sense, like, you know, as the one I'm going to talk about is if Hashem had brought us to our Sinai, but didn't give us the Torah, they ain't, it would have been okay. Which makes no sense logically. What does that mean? The whole purpose of getting to Har Sinai was to get the Torah. And you can say that question on a lot of the different Dayenu. So on the first, first of all, you know, this is the Torah, Pshat level. That we have to talk about the Pshat. The Pshat is not Dayenu that would have been sufficient, and we didn't need the other thing. But Dayenu, it would have been sufficient reason for us to say thanks to Hashem, even had He not gone further and given us more, we still have to say thank you for the little things, even if we didn't get the big things. And that's clear at the, the paragraph right afterwards. We say, All the more so that Hashem did all these things, that therefore we have to thank Him for all that He did. But that's the shot But still, the question is even just to say those words, If Hashem brought us towards our, to our Sinai and didn't give us the Torah, it would have been sufficient. Isn't the whole purpose to get the Torah? So again, in the Eliyahu Kito Haggadah, he quotes the Rosh amshav one of the Rabbi's. Rebbes. Um, it's based on Rabbi Akiva's famous statement that there was a gear that came to Rabbi Akiva and said, teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one foot. And Rabbi Akiva said, "There." kamocha de- Kal Gadol B'Torah. That is the most important rule in the Torah. The Idach Perushahi, and the rest is just a Perush, It's just an explanation of the Avdul R'achak. And as we all know, the famous Rashi. When Bnei Yisrael reached Har Sinai, it says Va'yichan Sham Yisrael Negehar. Va'yichan. Rashi asks, it should say Vayachanu. It's talking about Yisrael. They're a plural, many people. So why does it say? Specifically, by Yichan in singular, Sarashi says, because at that point we were Ki'ishachad, we were like one person with one heart, meaning we had reached the level of Yahaf, we were like brothers, absolute brothers, like one person, which is the ultimate we all strive towards. That Am Yisel should be Am Echad. And therefore, had we reached the level of such a high level of well the rest of the Torah would have just flowed from that. We would have been able to, to get the rest of the Torah on our own because as Rabbi Akiva said everything else is just a peirush of the and therefore even if Hashem hadn't given us a Torah dayenu because we would have already been able to get there by ourselves. We hope, especially in these days I know we're not talking politics but you know, especially in these days where the there's such a lack of ahavat achim, of love for one another, and there's such strife going on. We really, really need to pray and work on this very important mitzvah, so that we can grow in our Torah and grow in we're talking about the Gula also. But it'll for sure bring about the ultimate Gula, Cook said, you know, The second Beit HaMikdash, the second temple, was destroyed because of sinachina, of unbased hatred. And it will only be rebuilt if we have Ahavat Chinam. Ahavat Chinam means even though we might not really you know, like the other person, we might not, might not see the good in the other person, but we have to love him anyway because he's a fellow Jew. And Halavai, we should be zolka to that very soon.
0: Amen. Thank you for that beautiful idea. Let's move on. Rabbi Aram, I know you want to speak about Rabbi Gamliel and Pesach Matzah and Maror.
4: Okay, actually, I want to talk about my two things together, because I think they're late. And also relate a little bit to practical ideas about the Seder. That's okay. Of course. The Seder is a very special evening where it's demonstrative and participatory. In other words, it's something that everyone's involved and it's very active. Uh, the best way of putting it, I think, is that we're basically going to see a performance and it turns that we are the actors. In this performance each and everyone around the table is is the acting in the performance and furthermore the story that we're telling is our story and it's our collective story and it's also our personal story and the key line in my opinion that epitomizes this is a person's obligated to see himself as he has come out of egypt and if furthermore i want to point out that the rambam's a version of that line of the haggadah doesn't say it doesn't say a person should see themselves, but a person should show themselves, express themselves. Which really refers to what I was saying earlier or starting off by saying, which is that it's it's an evening that we're supposed to get into the role-playing. Get into the sense that this is our story, we're telling our story and, and really uh, get into the really get into the spirit. Of it. That is the key, in my opinion, of the Seder. Much more than any particular Torah. If we can get ourselves into that, that's the purpose of the evening. And Part of that is Pesach Matamaru, because these are the three main props of our performance. Pesach Matamaru, And that's why if you don't say these things, you haven't been able to say everything else is almost all secondary. You've got to get into the acting, the, the performance, and identify these three elements. Um, so i want to break it down a little bit more. Firstly, to Chayvat One point there is the preface is Bechol Dor That expression in each and every generation comes up one at a time also in Haggadah earlier on, the He under in the section that we said, this is stood for our forefathers, uh, that in every generation, they rise up against us to destroy us, and the everyone blessed he saved us from their hand. That theme we picked up then is what we're supposed to see, every generation. You see yourself coming in Egypt, quite frankly, it's easy, it's easy, because throughout our history, we have always had to come through different stages of, of redemption. That's, that's, the, that's the idea, to make it personal, to make it, real and to tell those those stories as well. Pesach. Pesach al Shuma. What is the Pesach about? It's something very strange which I really thought about today quite a lot which is that the name of the korban of the sacrifice that God willing will be on the table uh, when we get the temple rebuilt it's called, the, it's called Pesach. That's the name of the korban of the sacrifice in front of us and the question is why uh, and if you go back to the verses, the verses that we're quoting, it's because Hashem was Pesach over our houses. So for most of them, just the word Pesach itself. The word Pesach, what does it mean? Most of us use the, the simple explanation of Rashi that Hashem, as it were, skipped over the houses when he went to destroy um, the first one of the Egyptians. It has to be said that Unchus' translation is that it has the connotation of uh, mercy, Chas, uh, Yahus, and Rashi brings that as well. So he... He had pity to protect us. Uh, he skipped over. And the Banesha points out that Pesach is to the word, based on the rough side. Go on as well. It is connected to the word for limping. stayach is, is someone who limps and hobbles from one foot to another. There's another very interesting use of the word Pesach, also in the, in the Tanakh, when uh, Eliyahu is complaining at Mount Carmel. What's going on? How long are you going to be or shneya sleeping? Are you going to be skipping? From one from one branch to the other is Hashem the true God. with the Baal the true God? Make up your mind, and this concept of like like going from one foot to the other. So that's a, that's uh, so on the, on the on the linguistic side of the word Pesach. Okay, so Hashem, as it were, skipped or had mercy over our, our houses, but the korban called Pesach. Why? There seems to be no intrinsic reason for the sacrifice to be called Pesach. I, I thought of one idea, but it, it, it's problematic, which is that. that the blood on the doorposts was the sign, as it were, as it said in the verse, Hashem will see the blood and jump over, and the Pesach, which is great. The problem with that is was that's one of the differences between the Pesach of Egypt and the Pesach of all the generations to come. We don't spread the blood on the doorposts of the house. We did it one time when we left Egypt. For all the generations to come, it's the sacrifice we bring in the Beit HaMikdash. So it's a very strange thing. And my, I, I mean, it's more of a question, but my own best Stars like now is simply the purpose is it's a prop, it's called Pesach arbitrarily. It could have been called anything, but we're calling it Pesach to, as a tribute to say you see this sacrifice which we call the Pesach. You don't want to call Pesach Just to retell the story of Hashem jumping over our houses, and it, it, it reinforces this idea that everything is going on as as a, as a show. Uh, and here's the prop, the, and the purpose of the Pesach prop is simply to get the term Pesach to refer back to the story itself, matzah. Uh, as we know, matzah is the, is the fact that we 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 uh, were redeemed quickly. The didn't the dough didn't have time to rise. That's the simple answer. Why why is that significant? There are many ideas. I just to share one, which is that when you when you have momentum, you've got to keep going. Okay, when things get moving, the good happens. Seize the charts because if you don't, you'll 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 miss the moment. And that is what comments is. You know, mitzvah There's the Al based on the word. Hametz, we shouldn't let it rise. So perhaps seize the opportunity move. And um, Maror, okay, so the bitterness. But here's a strange thing. In the historical order, the Maror comes first. We have the bitterness of the exile before Hashem jumped over the houses and saved us, and before we break the matzah and we redeemed. So why is it at the end of the list? Perhaps I would suggest, firstly, to emphasize that the main thing we want to focus on is the redemption, the Pesach and the matzah, that was done quickly. But I had another idea, which is that all the trials and tribulations, all the difficulties, all the suffering we have experienced, we need to integrate it. We need to integrate it. We need to we need to package it. Um, my wife, bless her, said that, yes. If you have bad news, if someone has bad news to share, you try and uh, mitigate it. But you have to pick up the phone. Someone's sick. He says you first by saying it's okay If the person's going to be okay, but And this is what happens. You know, you want to come. You want to frame the the news. So the person has completely fallen apart. Similarly, when we're re- reliving the Maror, the, the bitterness of exile, we do jump into the exile straight away. We want to package it a little bit. Pesach, Matzah, Maror. Now we can integrate the memories of the terrible times we had in the context of the Gerula. And all of these, ideally the Pesach, when the Beit and Midrash is rebuilt, the Matzah, the Maror today, all these experiences and props, we go to the next level, we literally internalize them by eating them. With that, we're we, we, we sort of becoming one with the experience, putting it in. Literally, there's no better sort of connection or to, to the experience than literally eating them. Um, and that's, again, reinforcing the idea of the whole idea of the Pesach, of the, the say, excuse me, is experience. We should experience the exile, as I said, i people. my idea, is that we're experiencing it, we're telling the story by being both the actors
0: at, in the performance, and it's our story. Thank you for that, Rav Ram. That was really meaningful, and I appreciate it very much, this idea of the props. It also triggered an idea in my own head, a memory of learning with my son Yaakov a few weeks ago. Yaakov is 19. The fact that you said that the matzah represents this idea of don't delay, don't let a mitzvah wait. What's actually interesting is that when Paro told B'nai Israel they could leave right after Makat wrote at midnight, Hashem said you can't leave until the morning. So between midnight and the morning, they were in this sort of limbo stage, neither redeemed nor in exile. And the Gemara and Brachot talks about this as well. And that's what Yaakov and I were looking up, because the Gemara and Brachot says that the nighttime was sort of a gaula, but not a full gaula, whereas the morning is a full gaula, a full redemption. Yaakov suggested something interesting. Why is it that they couldn't leave right away? The night is a symbol of galut. The night is a symbol of exile. We see this, for example, in the liturgy where we say in Mariv, emet ve'emunah. It's true, but I believe it because I can't see it explicitly. Whereas in the morning... Daytime, a symbol of gula, of redemption, we say emet Vyatsiv. It's true and certain. I can see it with my own eyes. Nighttime is a time where God seems to be absent. It's galut, even though we know he's really there. The gula shlema, the ultimate redemption, is a time when we will see that even in the darkest moments, even when God appears to be completely absent, he actually is there. Because we know, we say it in Kiddush Levana, that the moon will be as bright as the sun. Metaphorically, that means that in the nighttime, God's presence will be just as apparent as in the daytime. Galut and gula will be... The same thing. That's the gula So my son Yaakov suggested that perhaps the reason they couldn't leave right away and they had to wait until the morning was to tell us that this is not the gula This is a tremendous redemption. We are leaving Egypt. We are going into a redemptive state and leaving an exile. But... It's still not the gulash the complete ultimate redemption, when nighttime is like daytime. Because it's still not the final redemption, you have to leave in the daytime. The ultimate redemption, that's the time that we'll leave even at midnight. We'll leave even when God appears to be absent. That's why we say that Tisha B'Av is in some ways the day of the ultimate redemption, when the darkest day of the calendar is as bright as the day of Pesach. I thought that was a very nice idea. Thank you again, Rav Aram. Rav let's move on to you. You want to speak about Hallel, and Hallel, of course, is divided into two at the Seder. There's a section we call Hallel, which is at the end, but that's the latter Prakim. The first two parts of Hallel, the first two Prakim of Hallel, are said before we eat the matzah as part of Magid. So why don't you offer your ideas about that?
5: Thank you. Thank you for doing this also. This is really, you know, it's a wonderful reunion for us, and it's great to, you know, to share ideas. And remember how everyone thinks I was, I, I too was just shocked that Rev Lichtman spoke about uh, Eretz Yisrael. It just, I have no idea where, you know, where he, you know, how he's changed. People over change, the years.
0: people change over eight years. Yeah, you know?
5: I don't know. It's really, really uh, um But what I'd like to share is, is just, uh you know, you know, Hallel gets kind of short shrift in terms of the divrei Torah at Seders, uh, because, you know, we're busy talking about, uh, the rest of Sefer Mitzrayim, and every you know, most Jews who who uh, you know who, who pray on a regular basis even know Hallel by heart. Despite the fact that we know it very well, we don't really ask you know real questions about the text so often, because it's uh you know it it's Hallel. I think we know it too well. So there's a pasuk in the second paragraph of of Hallel, and then it goes on and it it says Hayam the sea looked and fled, and the Jordan turned back. This is obviously referring to the nisim of Kriyat yamsuf and the splitting of the Jordan that takes place in the third parak of Sefer that right before the Jewish people enter the land of Israel, where the Jordan also sort of split, or it actually it didn't really split, it sort of stopped. Uh, the stoppage of the flow of the water of the Jordan that allowed Am Yisrael to cross it on dry land right there in the third parak of Yeshua. Now, what's strange about this crossing of the Jordan that it's mentioned here is that, as I mentioned, the parak opens with the words, B'Tseit Yisrael Mi So ostensibly, it's talking about the Nisim that HaKadosh Baruch did for the Jewish people when they left Egypt. And the Jordan was crossed 40 years after Am Yisrael left Egypt. Uh, for the most part, the people who crossed it weren't even born at the time of the of, of the Exodus. So why is it mentioned here? But uh, there's a bigger question about this, uh, which has to do with the comparison of these two events, the Kriyas Yamsuf and the splitting of the Jordan. Because again, this whole parak is really about the Nisim that Hashem does for Am Yisrael. It mentions also the water from Iraq. But uh, when you, if we look at these two events, so w- there's an obvious similarity, right? Both of them involve a bodies, a body of water splitting or receding allowing allowing Amisrael to cross on on dry land. But the but the similarity actually ends there. Because Yetzias Mitzrayim, the Kriyas the splitting of the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea, however you want to translate of Yamsu, Mitzrayim saved Amisrael from imminent danger. The Psukim are very clear that Amisrael was was terrified, Paro's army's approaching, they're they're crying out to Hashem, there's a danger of annihilation, and they're davening for a miracle. Moshe Rabbeinu says, oh, just daven, Hashem will save us with a miracle. Of course, Hashem tells Moshe to tell the people to go. But the miracle at the Jordan, Am Yisrael was not in any kind of danger at all. They were not in any immediate need of, uh, of being saved from, from anything happening to them. Had the miracle not been performed at all, they probably would have not had much trouble getting across the Jordan. The Jordan River is between three and ten feet deep, depending on where... You measure it. It's also not very wide. It ranges about thirty to fifty feet across in most places. So it's a fairly shallow, not so wide river. And uh, the miracle was wonderful, but was it absolutely necessary? And more to the point, as I as I just mentioned, as opposed to Kriyas Yamsov, the splitting of the Jordan or the or the stopping of the Jordan did not uh, provide Am Yisrael with any salvation from danger. So why is it included in this, in, in halal in this Perak that's talking about these miracles that saved Am Yisrael and what Hashem does for us? Uh, there's a lot of other miracles that we could have called upon. And apparently it's just here because of the similarity to Kriyas Yamsuf. But again, it's not a very, uh, it doesn't seem to be a very important miracle, as it were. Uh, but I think that the answer is actually right there in what I just said. You know, perhaps the entire point of the Pasuk is... The fact that the splitting of, of Yamsuf saved the Jewish people from danger and the splitting of the Jordan didn't. Let me explain what I mean. We tend to, to daven for miracles when we need help, but more more to the point when we feel like there's nothing we can do, that all natural means are hopeless. And we need God, and we daven for a miracle. So we hope and pray, and, 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 and you know, for our kodesh baruch to save us. And that's what's going on when Am Yisrael is at the banks of the of the Yamsuf and Paro's armies approaching, and they're and they're panicking, and they're davening. And Moshe says, Hashem is going to save you. They're davening for God to save them. And if you ask, okay, why should God save us? Well, God should save us because if part of His plan is that Am Yisrael, uh, you know, continues and is saved, and is and is the vehicle for Him showing Himself to the world. So of course, He should suspend the laws of nature and save us. We definitely want miracles when we need them. But what about all those times when we feel like we don't need Hashem? When we feel like we've got it all under control? What ends up happening there is we often don't daven at all. We don't think we need God and we forget about reaching out to Him. You know, it's like, you know, the kid only calls home when he's out of money or he's in trouble. Otherwise, he may not talk to his parents at all. You know, but, uh, do we treat HaKadosh Baruch Hu that way? So perhaps... The Amisrael was being sent a message at the Jordan River. They were entering into a land where they were about to engage in years of war to conquer the land from pagan people who inhabited it. This is a war for the land of Israel, which was also simultaneously an all out war on paganism. And paganism, first and foremost, is worship of natural forces. So just as they're about to begin this chapter of their history, God sends Amisrael a clear message. Do not rely only on natural forces. Don't say, that, that, that we're going to win these, this war through natural forces. God was in effect telling them, just as I was there when you left Egypt and you were powerless and in danger, I'm also there when you're strong and confident and you think you have it all under control. So God's control of the natural order is not only a last resort when all else fails. He's not only a God for times of crisis, but God's manipulation of the natural order also is equally there when we're strong and we're entering the promised land.
0: Thank you. That's a fantastic idea. I appreciate that. I feel like a broken record. and would say that to everybody, but they are really important ideas, and they're beautiful. Rabbi can you continue talking about Korech?
5: Oh, Absolutely. So this idea I'm going to share with you, I, um, my kids are tired of hearing it because I say it almost like a bracha, uh, you know, almost like a, almost as part of the text of the Haggadah, I say it every single year at my Seder as a way of kind of stating my intent before korech. So I'm going to start talking about something that happens right after korech as a way of talking about korech. There's a minag that is brought by the Ramah that we eat an egg after korech, right before shulchanarech. Many people misunderstand this minag. They think it has to do with the egg that's on the Seder plate, which it does not. The egg on the Seder plate has a different symbolism. Uh, but I, I want to read to you from the Rama, his description of why we eat this egg. He says, Noagim b'kitzat l'echol zecher hata'am, mishum tisha'ba'av, nikba' pesach, ve'od, zecher la'churban." <laughs> Shahayu makrivin korban pesach. This is a very strange rationale for the minute. Let me just translate it. The Rama says that the reason for this custom to eat an egg, which, like I said, is always done. Anyone who does this minute, gets done right after korach, right before you eat the meal. That the minute to eat this egg is based on the fact that an egg is a sign of of a velut. It's a sign of mourning, and Tishabov, the night of the ninth of Hav, the night the, the night of Tish every year falls out the same night as Seder night, and then he says and also and notice he doesn't say Zechar lecarbon pesach remembrance of the carbon pesach he says Zechar because of the carbon pesach very interesting line there, it's a remembrance of the destruction of the temple and what's so strange about this is that it is forbidden, it is absolutely against halacha to show signs of a velut on Chag. We're not supposed to do signs of a velut. Um, and, and furthermore, this maybe chilling coincidence that Tishabav always falls out on the Seder night, does that mean that we're supposed to have a little uh, a moment of Tishabav at the Seder? Just because it, it just so happens that it falls out on that night, we're gonna have this happening at the Seder. So I'd like to suggest, that the juxtaposition of this minug to the eating of Korech actually can bring deep meaning to both the minug and to Korech itself. Because at Korech we take matzah with marar and charoset, and we eat it. And frankly, I have to tell you, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved Korech. I enjoy it. I actually find it tasty. I eat more of it during the meal often. I sometimes don't eat other things, and I eat Korech. I like Korech, but that's very strange. Because imagine. That it's the first year, it's the first Pesach after there was no more carbon Pesach. The korban has happened. We're not bringing a carbon Pesach anymore, and and we're a bunch of Jews, and we've always eaten the carbon Pesach at the seder. And now we don't know what to do, because the central focus of the seder, as was stated earlier, the central focus of the seder is the carbon Pesach. And what's more, the carbon Pesach we're told, keino sahil el bezman shebeita mikdash what did Hillel do? He would take the carbon Pesach, and because the Pasuk says, Al-Matzot Umrorim Yochluhu, he would take the carbon Pesach, and he would have a sandwich. And the carbon Pesach would be a very nice meat sandwich. And picture a meat sandwich like a hamburger. Picture a hamburger where you have a bun, and you have lettuce, and you have special sauce, and you have no meat. You came late to the barbecue. There's no meat left. So, you, so Nebuch, you take a bun, you slap some ketchup on it and some lettuce and, and, and you eat that. If I if I offer you a hamburger and I give you the bun with the lettuce and the tomato and the, and the mayonnaise and the ketchup, whatever you put in your burger, but there's no meat in there. And I say, here's your burger. If you take a bite of that thinking it's a hamburger, the number one sensory experience you will have is not what you're tasting. It will be what you're lacking. What happened? Where's my burger? The main thing you're going to be thinking about and tasting is the lack of meat. So when we eat korech, we are out of our minds. We've been in gullus way too long. If when we eat korech, we say, "Oh, delicious! I love korech. I love eating this this roasted lamb sandwich with lettuce and special sauce, without the roasted lamb." If we think that's delicious, so when we eat korech. The main sensory experience we're supposed to have is the lack of carbon Pesach. And that is a moment of Tishabav. We feel Tishabav. We have a moment of Khorban, of Tishabav at the Pesach Seder, a sensory experience of the Chorban That that's a one time experience in the year. So for a few minutes, yes, the answer to my question is yes, it's correct. It is Zecher the Khorban. And it is a moment, a miniature moment of Tishabov, right there, Seder night, because we've just eaten a carbon pesach sandwich without the carbon Pesach.
0: Wow. Very, very important point. Thank you. That was great. Okay, let's move on. Rob Herzig, I know you want to talk about the Afikoman.
1: Right. I'm going to talk about the Afikoman. I was doing a little research into the origin of a minhag, that if it's not universal, it's certainly almost universal. And that is. That at the seder after yachatz we break the matzah the middle matzah in two so we the we put away the larger of the two pieces of the matzah to eat as the afikomen but then there's a minhug that's I don't, I don't see it in the Shulchan Aruch but like I said it's it, I think it's universal with one variation or another that the kids steal the uh, Afikomen, they hide it away somewhere, and they hold it for ransom until the time we're supposed to eat the Afikomen, and they get a prize from the balabite. And I was wondering how that minig, what's the meaning of that minig, how it originated, and you can't just say that it's some kind of gimmick to, you know, get the kids excited, which it does work as, but you can't reduce it to just that, because when we look at the simonim of the Seder, when we talk about the, uh, when we mention the afikoman, we don't call it afikoman, we call it tzafun, hidden, and these simonim are, they're at least a thousand years old, there's must There must be some significance to the fact that the afikoman is hidden and it's also stolen. Where does it come from? I did a little bit of research, and once I did a lot of research, but there's a sefer, Chok Yakov, one of the meforsho and shulchanar or who kind of mentions it. He says that the Rambam says that at the Seder we snatched the matzahs out of each other's hands, that the kids should ask. And the Chok Yaakov says that could be the origin of our minhag, uh, that the kids snatched the matzus. However, he doesn't say anything about the kids hiding the matzus and holding the matzus for ransom. Where does that come from? What does it mean? So uh, I'll suggest a possible explanation. And first, I have to tell you over a Devar Torah from Maharil Diskin, Rabbi Yehoshua Leib Diskin, who was the Rav of the Ashkenazi Kehidla and Yerushalayim from 1890 to 1898. He held the position which today would be considered the Av Beistin of the Badats. So in his Sefer on Chumash, he says the following word. Let me read a couple. Well, first of all, the Yetzias Mishrayim, is not the only formative event in the development of the Jewish people that occurred on the night of the Seder. Long before that, we had another formative event, and that is we know that Yaakov uh, got the brachos from Yitzchak at the Seder. That also took place that this very same night, the very same date, took place at Yitzchak Avinu's Seder. So let me tell you a uh, Devar Torah from Maharil Diskin on uh, the, that Parsha, the brachos that Rivka and Yaakov collaborated to trick Yitzchak into giving to Yaakov rather than Esav. After Yitzchak Avinu eats the meal that Yaakov Avinu prepared for him, then Yaakov leaves the scene and Esav comes in and says, take some of my matamim that I cooked for you. So I just read a little bit Vayomer lo aviv. Yitzhak aviv, Isaac's father said to him, "Me Atta, who are you?" Vayomer ani ben Chovor Haesav. I'm your firstborn son, Esav. Vayacharig Yitzhak charadag admaod, Yitzhak trembled a very great trembling. Vayomer mi efu hu hatzad sayad, who then is the one who trapped the game? Vayaveli and he brought it to me. And I ate from everything before you came. And I blessed him. Also, he should be blessed. Listen to these words that Yitzchak Avinu tells Esav. Who had Who's the one who trapped the game? And he brought it to me. And I ate from everything before you came. I ate from everything. I tasted everything on the menu what's he telling that for? Was he telling him that he I ate from everything? What significance is there? So, uh, Rabbi Yisholai Diskin explains the Ohal Mikol, Esav told his father, okay, you ate you, what Yaakov brought you, he gave him a blessing, and of course, eating a good meal to put the uh, the one who gives the blessing in the proper frame of mind was a necessary condition for transmitting these blessings. So Esau says, okay, so take mine too and give me a blessing too. Yitzhak Avinu tells him, I ate from everything. I ate the afikomen already. So after the afikomen, I can't eat anymore. I'm sorry. I can't take matamin from you. So in other words, Yaakov Avinu clinched the brochus by feeding his father the afikoman, but the vort doesn't end because two later, Yitzchak Avinu continues telling Asaf Rav Diskin died in 1898. He was succeeded by Rav Shmuel Salant, and I think around 1910, Rav Shmuel Salant was succeeded as Av Bastin of the Ashkenazim in Yerushalayim by Rav Yosef Chaim Zonnenfeld. Zunnen, so somebody told Rosanenfeld over this board, and he says, "Well, of course, you can see from the pesukim that it was the Afikomen that did the trick for Yaakov, because two pesukim later, Yitzchak Avinu tells Esav, 'Byomer, he said, Ba Your brother came with deceit, and he took, or with wisdom, and he took your blessing Bimirma in Gematria as exactly.'" The matria of Afikomen, 287. Your brother came with the Afikomen, and he took your blessing. Okay, if you don't remember the rest of the word, I'm going to tell you, it's not important. Remember what my real distance said. But anyhow, getting back to why the kids steal the Afikomen, they hide the Afikomen, and they get a prize from the Balabite. On that night, ya- Yaakovinu used deceit through the Afikomen to get the prize from his father. And his father was blind. Ein ha-bracha ela hasamui min ha-ayin. You can only get, br- like Gemara says, you get, bracha is commonly found only in things that are unseen by the eye. So the kids take the afikomen deceitfully, they steal it, they put it in a place that is unseen by the eye, and they use the afikomen to get the prize, the bracha, from their father. And I think that can be a remez in the words, the hidden afikomen leads to the bracha. And this really explains something else. When you're the host at any Suda during the year, you have the right to honor your guests with leading the benching. But you can't do that on the Seder night. The Balabais. Is the one this the halacha Psuk in the Shulchan Arach, the balabais is the one who has the Ramah says this the balabais is the one who has to lead the berachas zone. and he says it's based on the pasuk Tov Ayin Hu Yevorach a person with the good eye the generous hospitable person he is blessed so that's why the balabait leads in the benching but the question is why are you considered Tov ayin. Why is the balabaius considered tov ayin only on the night of Pesach? Now, that should be a reason. You know, you're the host. You're being. Uh, you're paying for the meal of your guests. You're They're eating anytime you have guests. So why is it only on Pesach that you're the tov ayin? So perhaps we can say it's Dabka the balabaius not because he's providing the meal. The Tov Ayin is he's giving the bracha, like Yitzchak Avinu, he gave the bracha, Gam Baruch ye. he gave the bracha, in retrospect, wholeheartedly to Yaakov Avinu, Tov Ayin Hu Yevorach. The Balabites is a special Tov Ayin on the night of the Seder, because not only is he responsible for the meal, but he gives the bracha
0: okay, Rav you've convinced me, you've convinced all of us. We need more of those Divrei Torah. We're going to reopen the yeshiva just to get that. Thank you. That was really, really nice. Just before we conclude, I want to ask anyone now, their mics have been off, but if anyone would like to say something, perhaps Rabbi I know you wanted to say something about how to make the Seder engaging. Obviously, the primary way is through wonderful Divrei Torah and through fellowship and telling the story and teaching our children and teaching ourselves. At the same time, sometimes people will find that Others at the seder, whether adults or children, might be bored. They might not be into it. I guess what I'm looking for is advice for everybody. How can the seder be more engaging for those who don't find it so exciting? I'm not expecting any major hidush I'm not expecting anyone to have the answer. But this is something which many people struggle with. Perhaps each of us has some ideas of ways to make it engaging for those who may not find it as engaging. Rav Crone?
2: Uh, sure. You know, I don't think I have any great uh, in here, but I'll just throw a couple uh, couple thoughts. You know, when our kids were uh, were a lot younger. So, I think we spent a lot of time, you know, Rabbi Aram talked about props, you know, using the, the props of the Seder itself. I think, you know, so, but we can also cheat a little bit and use other props. You know, uh, my grandmother, Allah Shalom, she used to make uh, special uh, pillowcases. She would knit special pillowcases that were Pesach themed. You had a frog, you know, there's a frog pillowcase and a matzah pillowcase, and little things like that often helped a lot, you know, different uh, props with the different makot and uh, those types of things, I think, always uh, helpful decorating the table. In a certain way, with the younger kids, and certainly to you know to ask, you know, the kids are supposed to ask a lot the questions of us. That certainly is part of uh, the the nature of the seder. But you know, obviously, throwing out questions to the kids and prizes and things like that. As Rabbi right. mentioned, you know, the the, the fun of the tafun also is is part of the excitement. Um, one of the things that we have actually in our family, I wouldn't call it the minug exactly, but we sort of developed over time, is that. Uh, We have, you know, certain songs that we uh, that we like singing together and we try to do them sometimes in a little more of like a sticky, silly way. Um, So much so that I think, you know, for us, one of the most exciting parts of the Seder is actually uh, Nirza. (laughs) We sing the Nirza songs in a fun way that uh, everyone's anticipating the end of the Seder. We're usually I think, you know, at least my experience growing up, that was a little bit, you know, we were much more tired and ready to run, and you know, ready to be done and go to bed. But actually, uh, a lot of, uh, in, in our experience, that the kids actually really appreciate and are excited for NERTSA. So that, I think, is a, is a fun thing to do. The second thing I just mentioned, I think, as you was know, certainly has become more relevant as my kids have gotten older, is that really trying to involve, I know certainly you always want to involve everyone in the Seder, but to do that in a more active way, uh, one thing my wife primarily does, and you know, I certainly uh, support it and in the, in the, in the, in try to help out as well, is to give everyone little assignments, whether it's before the Seder itself or just at the Seder, whether it's a thought-provoking question or something that uh, something to say, to read, uh, to present something, and that everyone sort of feels a, a buy-in uh, to the Seder. And, of course, also, I think, trying to uh, to make the devretory that we share and the insights we have, but to say they're relevant not just to be, to be trying, which obviously is the prime focus of the of the evening, but also to talk about what that actually means to us, you know, uh, what experiences we've had in the past year and things like that, and sort of to talk a little on, on a deeper level and uh, certainly as the kids, uh, when they're younger also, this is relevant, but certainly as they get older to uh, to try to make the Seder, you know, relevant for certainly the night, but also uh, beyond it.
0: Okay. Thank you very much for that, Rabbi Krohn. Rav Olicke, what did you want to say about this?
2: So I, I'm going to share a, a, two
5: ideas, but they're really part of one idea about how to make the Seder more engaging. And it's something that I've done for many years. Let me start uh, by saying that uh, many years ago, I heard from one of uh, Rabbi Jakub Kamenetsky's grandchildren that he would do Magid rather quickly because he didn't feel it was respectful to his wife who had prepared a nice meal for people to be eating it hours and hours after it's been sitting and heating and at at a time of day where they're not used to eating so they don't enjoy it as much. Uh, And it was also, it's also, oh, it's it's often hard to tell. It's often a challenge for those serving the meal to figure out during the course of a lengthy Magid when, you know, when to have dinner ready. For me, uh, having a fast Magid uh, solves uh, uh, some other problems. Let me raise a number of issues that come up at the Seder and how we're going to solve them with a fast Maggit and what that looks like. Number one, uh, as much as we, you know, you, you know, we're the morning Seder of from Yisodia Torah, we're the kind of people who, who will enjoy sitting around the table and listening to lots of intense Divri Torah. But in most families, at most Seders, there's a lot of people there who that's actually a difficult experience or the Divrei Torah will drag, there's younger people there who want to eat, but then if they eat early, then they're not really fully participating in in the Seder as it goes later. They're often not even around for for parts of the Seder. Uh, There's also people who just, in terms of the content of the Divrei Torah, it's difficult for them to sit through. Uh, So you have that issue, and you have people getting a little bit uh, uneasy about when they're going to eat, getting hungry. All of these issues uh, can get solved, and some other benefits come along if you do the following. This is what we've been doing for many years. When it comes to Magid, we just read it through with barely a comment, a few little comments here and there, just to raise some some specific points. Uh, if someone has a has a question that they thought of during Magid and they don't want to forget it, because we obviously can't write things down in Yontif, so it's that's fair game to just raise the question and put it out there to be discussed later. But then, when we get to the meal, we keep our Haggadahs out. We go back to the beginning of Magid. And during the course of the meal, everyone speaks. Now, this comes to the second idea, which, is, which relates to Rabbi Krohn's idea, but uh, we do it in a much more, uh, you know, sort of tightly scripted way, which is whoever's being invited to the Seder, doesn't matter their age, doesn't matter who they are, anyone being invited to the Seder weeks in advance, uh, sometimes I, I, I usually try to do this about a month in advance, is whoever's coming to my Seder is assigned a piece of the Seder. And I break up Magid into, you know, every paragraph gets its own entry. You can break it up in in different ways, obviously. You can do every single paragraph, or you can do, depending on how many people you have or how many assignments you want to give out. But basically, I give out all of Magid. So people at a smaller you know, sometimes people will have more than one piece that they're going to be preparing, and everyone is supposed to prepare a couple of minutes on whatever they're assigned and you get the whole thing covered. And then if people don't take certain paragraphs, I take them for myself, that's fine. But during the course of the meal, it's not just table talk and schmoozing about whatever, but in between courses, while people are eating, some people are reading, other person's getting up to speak. But during the course of a very long shulchan arech, we go through magid again, hearing Divrei Torah and discussion on everything. Now, what this does is, first of all, we get to the food more quickly. It makes a lot, uh, the full participation of the young kids is there. People who are who were getting impatient about getting to the say uh, about getting to the don't have that issue at all. We get to the meal very quickly, and also those who have difficulty sitting through the Torah don't just have to sit politely and sit through the Torah. There's a meal going on; they could also get up and walk away from the table much more, much more easily. Now, this does not mean I've told this to many people, and they say, "Wow, no, we love to have a long magid." I'm like, "No, no, we're having just as long a magid. We're just not doing it during magid." This isn't a short seder. This isn't a rushed seder. We're also eating the afikoman barely on time, because we've just had a very long sefer yitzias mitzrayim during the meal. And I remember when I first heard about Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky having a quick magid, I was told that not, that he said, "Listen, the mitzvah sefer yitzias mitzrayim is the whole night. It's not constricted to magid. So why do you have to do all of your devar Torah during magid? Do them do them during the meal." And that's when I thought of this whole thing. It made our—it's made our seder. We, we started doing this. It's probably between fifteen and twenty years ago. It's a long time ago, and it, it really made the seder very enjoyable. There was no sense of of urgency when saying Divrei Torah during Magid. You know that whole thing of like you're watching the clock. Oh, you got to finish up. We got to move on. There's none of that tension in the room anymore, and the seder becomes very engaging for everyone and uh, much more enjoyable. So I can't uh, recommend this enough.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's a really important idea. I know you and I have talked about that before. I knew you did it, and that's nice to hear the reasoning behind it. So great, Rav Lithman, I know you wanted to say something as well.
3: Okay, a lot of the points were already brought up, and maybe I'll just uh, sum it up. Uh, Rav Herzig started the uh, the evening off by uh, by by telling us the uh, the beautiful word of the simanim, and he said Yachat and he was talking about how to be a pure person, that you shouldn't talk so much, etc. But maybe let's take it literally, Yachat Magid, like Rav. Rab Pesach said, "Let's cut the magid in half. In other words, let's let's just go through it. Okay, maybe not as extreme as Rab Pesach said, and then I'll say, no divrei But you know, certainly we can uh, we can try to move it along. And then, as he said, 100 percent, you know, you have the entire meal. There's no reason why you can't have uh, the ideas brought up at the meal. But I also think that the idea of the experiential being." Um, being the main part. And we all know this as educators that, you know, we we all gave so many shirim and many other places that we've taught. 15 years down the line, we meet our students somewhere and we say, do you remember that chair I gave, um, you know, on babakama daf gimel? I'll we'll say, oh, sorry, Rabbi, but I really don't. Okay? Um, they don't remember that, but I don't know if you remember this, but I had this little shtick, which I think I learned from um, of Teller, That every time we would get to a Tana and I would sing it. I would sing Tana Rabbanan in a certain way. And there's you probably, definitely remember that. Right? There's no doubt that every one of my students remembers that. They remember them. They probably do it themselves when they're learning Gemara nowadays. They they do it.
0: Rav Luchman, I just have to tell you, sometimes when I'm with my son, we do that because of you and we think of you.
3: <laughs> Baruch Hashem. So it's the experiential that's the most important. I was talking to my, my my kids at the table today. I said, you know, I have to Zoom tonight. They'll give me some ideas. And that's what came up. You know, we don't remember. I don't remember. I mean, my children, Baruch Hashem, my sons are learning in yeshivas for, for years and years. And they have beautiful Dibrai Torah. I do not remember a single one of them. I don't. Because you know, you can't. It's just too much. Um, but like my daughter said, you know, I remember how we do Korich, and this is something that I, I got from my father, who got from his father. Um, you know, a certain way that we say, like Rev. Kron said, you do things in a cute way. And 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 my daughter, that like like the highlight of of, of the Seder is the way we say Yochlulu. Al we're in Yochlulu. You know, we say it in a funny way, and and that's what they remember. And also the singing. I mean, there's this generation is so you see the, the whole music scene and how all of our kids, Baruch Hashem or at least the kids here in Israel, they're they're into you know the Jewish music scene because there's such a variety nowadays, like music really touches their souls. And there are so many beautiful songs that the say there. Don't skimp on that. Don't say, Oh, but I have to say oh, we have to cut out this song. Never cut out a song. That is the ikar. That's what they remember. They stay up. They you know, we're all you know we can't keep our eyes open anymore. They're up till who knows how long, doing uh, you know all the songs of Mirza and, and even more, and they do Shira Shirim after that also, which is a sting song also. So I think I think the main point is that we have to uh, remember um, the experience. It's an experience, like maybe like Rav Varam said, you know, it's I have a dam laharotit you to try it. You know, it's not so much, you know, intellectually grasping what it means to be Yotze Mitzrayim. It's, it's the feeling, it's the emotions, and it's the experience that we have to try to relive. And therefore, those aspects of the Seder, I think, should be uh, emphasized. And I would also say, like what Rapesach said, I mean, I've heard so many stories of people who are like, we're so excited, they're going to their Rebbe's house for the Seder, they're expecting to hear such unbelievable Divrei Torah, and then. The Rebbe was just involved in, you know, little simple explanations for his kids to, and getting his kids involved, because that's not what it's. It's not about pilpulim. That's not what the. That's not what the seder is about. It's about the experience and and making sure that the kids enjoy being Jewish and enjoy Torah and mitzvot that understand how special we are as a nation. And and I think that's that's really what the focus has to be.
0: It's a beautiful message and a beautiful way for us to end this panel discussion tonight. I want to say to all of you how much I appreciate the fact that we had the chance to get together when old friends get together in the context of telling Torah and talking about how to make Judaism and our experience of the Seder more meaningful. I'm not sure there could be anything better or more meaningful than that. So I want to thank all of you. And I really am saying on behalf of, I'm sure, all the listeners as well, this was enlightening and important and just a true pleasure. So we Pesach Woleki, Rav Yaakov Aram, Rav Yisrael Herzeg, Rav Adi Krohn, Rav Moshe Lechman. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maman Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences